I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we are going to do kind of a weird episode and just talk about a bunch of neat stuff related to Spain and 1968 and Christianity. Uh, kind of a departure from some other things, but not completely. Uh, one of these historical things that we've done in the past. Uh, before we do that, though, a couple of announcements. One, we have a book club going on that starts this week on Jose Maria Miranda's book, Communism in the Bible. It's very short and very cheap, and you can get in on the book club by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash TheMagnificast. So if you're interested in reading that book with some other folks who are also interested in it, that's the place to do it. Uh, secondly, The Damnificast is back starting this week as well. Uh, we talked with our friend Drew Van Land about the latest episode, I think, what is it, number five now? Um, four. Anyway, four, yeah. <laughs> Cruising right along, slowly but surely. Uh, and so if you want to hear the Damnificast, which is a podcast all about the TV show Damnation, you can find that at Patreon as well. Uh, Matt, though, I hear, before we dive into Spain, uh, you've got some more gems from the Reddit Mines. Oh, uh, yeah, um, back uh, back from the Reddit mines, and I've got a sack full of gold for us. <laughs> uh, probably not. Okay. Hey, so every week on this podcast now, we've been taking a look at reddit.com slash r slash Christianity and finding just the most pressing and hot button theological issues that there are in the Christian world. And we've just been answering them. Uh, Dean, uh, he almost has a PhD. I have a PhD. And, like, you know, you guys uh, – Christians out there just need um, our guidance, our spiritual wisdom. I think so. This week we're gonna um, we're gonna take a look at uh, Reddit.com/slash/slash/Christianity and answer a few questions for the people um, on behalf of the people. Um, and let's see. It's also worth noting too that uh, Dean just got back from vacation, and then next week I'm going to take a vacation. I'm gonna go to Toronto and see Dean. That's gonna be so fun. Um, so I decided that this week we would focus on uh, on vacation themed uh, <laughs> spiritual questions. Yeah, so good. Dean, I've got two of them here for you, and they just they need your uh, your uh, biblical insight so bad. I'm primed. Um, okay. I'm, I'm back from vacation with a full brain, fresh. After these, though, you might need to uh, repent for some of that vacating you did. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, okay. So here's the first one. Missing church for vacation? <laughs> I've just started going to church on Sundays, and it's the highlight of my week. <laughs> sorry, that part's so not sorry. funny. Church is so fun. I love it. Um, I've been offered to go on vacation with a friend. So that's a nice friend. But if I want to go, I have to miss church. I always try to put church first, and I'm torn because I feel like I'm putting my own vacation over God. So, Dean, what do you think? What should this person do? Can you uh, can you take a vacation from church? You know, at first I was ready to be upset and say, of course you can. Of course you can take a vacation from church. Uh, church is boring and vacations are fun, and who doesn't want to have fun? Uh, but, you know, after hearing more from this question in particular, I'm suddenly dawning on me that church is actually just a weekly vacation. And why would you want to miss that? Why would you want one Good big point. chunk of vacation when you could have a regular vacation once a week? That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, church is a vac. We should make church more. Va okay, 
seeker-sensitive church idea right here. This is for all of you guys mm-hmm. out there starting church plants, all of you guys and gals and non-binary people. Um, I don't mean to say guys, but I do often. <laughs> so you, you start a new church, you plant it. You're like, dang, how am I going to get the people to come here? So this is what you do. You just get, instead of like, um, you know, like a cassock or whatever, or like robes, you just wear mm-hmm. a Hawaiian shirt. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of wearing uh, other types of vestments, you wear cargo shorts. Instead mm-hmm. of communion, mm-hmm. you just have some, uh, I don't know, Pine- pineapple juice you, you grill then, out at the altar you grill out at the altar that's what you do so so you make you make uh church more like what it's supposed to be a vacation from the week yeah yeah a vacation from the world i think that's the true christian message yeah uh, yeah i think that jesus said dead dead to the world but uh over in this one it's just vacation from the world yeah well what is heaven except for the ultimate vacation Right. Uh, and vacations, too. You know, it's our, it's like the already but not yet. You're already there, but, you know, you can't stay there forever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, it's a real kind of like enter to win situation, too, I think, Kevin. You got you to gotta buy your ticket and then uh, you can get on that cruise to eternity. That makes sense to me. OK, so here's the second question. Um, yeah. So that one was about like, you know, should you be should you feel bad for going on vacation? But this one's about what happens when you come back from vacation. Mm-hmm. OK. This user asks, thoughts on having vacation souvenirs hanging on the wall that have pagan gods represented. (laughs) So, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. After various vacations over the years, I've picked up different souvenirs from various countries. One is a one is a circular sculpture of a Mayan calendar from the Mayan temples. Another is a wooden is is a wooden bamboo from Jamaica. I don't know exactly what that means, but there you go. Uh, it was recently brought to my attention that these, de- that the, the grammar here is killing me. It was recently brought to my attention that these decor include pagan gods within the souvenir, the sun god, the rain god, etc. However, just curious on everyone's thoughts on being a Christian. However, having these vacation souvenirs hanging on a bathroom wall. <laughs> uh, where I have all my vacation souvenirs hanging. <laughs> <laughs> it's for those long times in the bathroom when you feel like you you need a vacation from everything that's happening in there. That's true, and you know, um, if you uh, if you're a family person and you have lots of if you have a kid in your house and they're running around going crazy, the bathroom can be a pretty good vacation. It's a just a, <laughs> a locked a small room with a locked door is all you need for a vacation uh, if you're yeah, yeah. a parent. That's why I've been uh, moving up bags of sand into my bathroom for the last three weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but okay. Hang on. We're getting a little bit off track here. So, Dean, can you answer <laughs> the question though? Please stop dancing around this question. Uh, it's so hard though. This is the thing. I'm, I'm avoiding it by just imagining my uh, my dream vacation bathroom. Uh, <laughs> can you put pagan symbols in your bathroom? But they're, really but they're souvenirs, this. right? Yeah, yeah. They are souvenirs. That's true. Uh, hmm. So really, they're they're probably not pagan gods if they're souvenirs. They're actually just the uh, the deities of capitalism, uh, and that's the real problem. That is one way of answering the question. Yes, <laughs> De- <laughs> devotion to mass-produced garbage. <laughs> that's the real problem. Uh, yeah, you know, if you're mad about this, if you're mad about the about the sun god in your bathroom, you're gonna hate museums. Um, mm, that's you're true. gonna just be a real, just not gonna be a fan of those things. <laughs> and uh, Catholic churches, as we all know, which are full of pagan deities. <sighs> that's true. Okay. That's why I go. They're a lot more fun. <laughs> They're more vacation-like than most churches. <laughs> that's why we invented the carnival. You know, VBS is kind of the answer to that vacation question. If you think about it, because it's always like a different theme. The I remember like really distinctly one one year that the VBS theme was like Hawaiian luau and uh, <laughs> oh, no. lots of cultural appropriation, That's lots so of bad. insensitive white people doing things they ought not to do. Uh, we ate a lot of pig and pineapples, though. So mm-hmm. that's something. Mm-hmm. Well, that is something. That's too bad. Uh, vacation Bible school is actually a terrible vacation, I think, if you're a child. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's the one like, that you don't you don't want. There's there's regular summer, there's summer vacation, and that's great because you watch TV, you go to your neighbor's house and swim in their pool, uh, and you just hang out until your parents tell you to come home because the sun's going down. It's a beautiful time in a child's life. Uh, vacation Bible school, though, just ruins it all. It's, it's literally putting you in school on vacation. Yeah, there's nothing vacation about it. 
uh, man, it sucks. It's just like, um, how can we trick kids into going to church every day? Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And make them uh, shitty bracelets with weird colored bead, beads that remind eight-year-olds that they're going to go to hell if they don't believe in <laughs> Jesus. That's a crucial part of the vacation. <laughs> a very important souvenir to hang in your bathroom wall. Yeah, that's one, one more you can add to that big... That big stinky wall. <laughs> that um, big collection of... of pagan deities on your bathroom wall. Yeah. Huh. One answer to this question was that um, that those pagan gods are actually just demons. So <laughs> So it's fine. So it's fine. Also, it's going to be bad because your bathroom is going to be haunted. Just really haunted. Extremely haunted. Yeah. Haunted bathroom. And that'll scare the poop right out of you. Okay, we've cut, we've done it. We've answered the question. That was the signal that now I know the question's <laughs> over. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move to more serious matters. Uh, this is not not the worst transition because the reason that I in particular have been reading about Spain lately is I went there on my vacation. Specifically, I went to Catalonia, which is. Did you uh, bring really... back any souvenirs though? I did. No uh, pagan deities. I did go to a festival, though, called the Dance of the Devils. Um, oh, my God. But I left them all there. Uh, <laughs> the uh, The region of Catalonia is really fascinating. You may or may not know much about Spain. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit in a minute. But it's a really interesting place because it's presently involved in a struggle for independence from Spain itself, which all of that is involved in the weird wild history of Spain in the 20th century, but also many, many centuries before. Uh, and one thing that really struck me walking around Catalonia is it's a place where there is real politics happening like every day in the streets. There's symbols of independence all over the place. There's hammers and sickle graffiti. There's anarchism graffiti. Uh, and Catalonia has a, a long history of resisting fascism uh, even to the point of being a significant part of the Spanish Civil War. And I went to church several times while I was there. And oh, you didn't I also, skip it? You didn't take a I vacation from church? I, I did not. I, I went to church. I took a vacation in my vacation. That's it's how crazy that, that, that the, uh, the answer that never occurred to us was that you could just go to church on vacation. <laughs> it's true. It is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Um, <laughs> but one fascinating thing about that whole time, I met a really interesting nun there, Sister Teresa Forcades. She's a Benedictine nun who's in the middle of the independence movement. She's a socialist. And uh, she told me that she became a Christian or a Catholic, uh, an active Catholic anyway, because of meeting people who were part of a group called Christians for Socialism, a group that we've talked about in the past. And so I've just been motivated to kind of think more about Christian resistance to fascism under fascist Catholic Spain. Uh, so to do that, we read a couple of things this week. One is a really fascinating article by Rebecca Clifford and Nigel Townsend called The Church in Crisis. Uh, Catholic Activism in 1968, and the other is some sections from a book by Gerd Rayner Horn called The Spirit of Vatican II, uh, and there's a whole subtitle about uh, European Christianity in the long 60s. Uh, so both of these are materials that deal with Europe and that region of Europe a little more generally, but we just sort of focused in on the stuff about Spain. Uh, so maybe we should kind of spend a little bit of time introducing the the backdrop of all this, like before the 60s, the Spanish Civil War, and then we can dive in a little bit. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so when people on the left think about Catholicism in Spain, they usually think about Francoism. Uh, if you've ever talked to a rad trad online, this is definitely the case, probably. <laughs> Just kidding, they're fine. Uh, if you, maybe. they're not. They're bad. They're not fine. They're bad, actually, but um, they do exist. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. And they sometimes are Francoists. If you don't know what Francoism is, don't talk to these weirdos on Reddit. Um, we'll just no. tell you a really short introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so Spain had a really tumultuous political situation at the turn of the 20th century, resulting in what was called the Second Spanish Republic. It was a progressive government that replaced the Spanish monarchy, and there were just like a ton of lefties running around. They were everywhere, coming out the, the woodwork. Uh, communists and anarchists were especially flourishing. Um, you know, this is probably what you, um, you know, might have heard or known already. The government, though, wasn't super pumped about Catholicism uh, because it enacted a lot of anti-clerical measures. Yeah, they like burned down churches and expelled a bunch of priests and uh, closed Catholic schools, that kind of thing, creating a lot of anti-Catholic uh, sentiment. Right. So there is anti-Catholic sentiment for sure. 
In light of that, a popular front government that included communists was elected in 1936, and that year also started the Spanish Civil War, led by fascist forces loyal to uh, the Spanish general Francisco Franco. Right, he's the, the bad guy, for sure. Franco created a right-wing coalition by appealing to the Catholic culture of Spain especially. And to make a long story short, when Franco finally won the Civil War, he made Catholicism the official state religion of his dictatorship. So all that to say, Catholicism isn't exactly the hero of anti-fascism in most leftist stories about Spain. But the thing about materialism is that ideas don't drive history. Material does. And like anything else, the Catholic Church got wrapped up in the material antagonisms of fascism. That led a lot of Catholics to not just support the Francoist state, but also to resist it in powerful ways. There was a lot of wild left-wing Christianity across Europe in the 20th century, but Spain actually, surprisingly, had some of the most committed Catholic presence in leftist movements. Yeah, this is illustrated really well in a passage from Horn in his book where he says, If Italy constituted the open laboratory par excellence of left Catholics in the long 60s, Spain must be regarded as the country where progressive Catholics in all likelihood played, when placed in a uh, comparative context, the most crucial roles in the overall social movement culture in the course of the 60s. And that's a really crazy thing, I think, because this, again, like Matt was just saying, is not the kind of story that you would think of when you think of Spain and Catholicism under Franco, right? You wouldn't really put Catholics at the the center of the story. And of course, they're not the, the only part or even the most significant part necessarily, uh, but the the point, I guess, that Horn makes really well is that Catholicism is not an open and shut case of this is only ever a fascist thing and it's only ever secular leftists that resist it. It's a lot more complicated than that. Right. Well, to put this whole thing into a little bit more perspective, right, there's this, you know, there's all kinds of like moving parts uh, politically in Spain at the time. But like Europe in general has got a lot going on during like the 60s and the 70s. Throughout Spain, France, Germany and Italy, there were tons of student protests, general strikes, occupied universities, political coalitions and lots of police repression. You might be most familiar with one of the more well-known parts of the story, um, May, June 1968 in Paris. Um, this is basically like the defining moment for every weird French philosopher. This is like the after this like sort of protest falls apart, um, they all stop being Marxist and turn to being like weird, depressed French guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's great. That's actually my they're my favorite types of French guys, but um, – <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Well, without getting too far into the weeds, the, the big thing that happened in uh, May, June 1968 in Paris where that like students began protesting and occupying university buildings, they were all really pissed off at Charles de Gaulle, who was the president of France for all like reasons. Um, but the protests quickly spread to other sectors of the society, most notably like factories. That was like, a big deal. Um, and you know, there's like a lot of stuff going on. Like sometimes there are coalitions, sometimes there are antagonisms between workers and students. It's a lot of stuff. Go read a book about it. Um, but by the time um, the the protests reached their most intense, despite all of like the antagonisms, there was something like 11 million workers on strike, right? So this is like kind of like a, a culminating moment of the political situation in like the 60s and into the 70s. The whole event is like wild and a huge source of inspiration for tons of modern movements even. Like if you look at some of the graffiti and slogans from Paris 68, they're surprisingly similar to like, you know, the sentiment of Occupy or something like that. Okay. So that's like going on in the, like the larger context in Europe, um, especially in France, right? But uh, Paris wasn't the only big moment of political action either. It was followed by some similar types of strikes and protests in Italy. Um, if you wanted to know more about those, you could just Google autonomia apparia or something like that. It was like um, Italian workerism. There's like kind of like a, a loose activist group um, that was engaged in sort of some similar ideas. It's not like Marxism-Leninism. It was definitely people influenced by Marxism, but in more of a left communist strain, um, which I'm into. It's it, even if you're a Marxist-Leninist or something, and you hate like left comms, and you know you're you're that type of person, fine. But there's a lot of stuff to learn from these people. Just the same. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But before like Italy, before France, um, there was uh, there are other movements happening throughout Europe. And like one of them that we need to think about, especially in this episode, is Spain. It's super interesting because, um, you know, a lot of these types of activist movements, they get really characterized as is secular, as like student led, as you know, um, they're not they're not religious in any sense. Um, 
But that's not quite the whole story. I wouldn't quite I wouldn't go on to say this is like quite a counter narrative. Um, the one of the articles that we read, uh, the one from Clifford and Townsend says it's not a counter narrative, but it's like um, a parallel development. Like there are all these like secular forces out there and probably probably, you know, mostly secular forces. But alongside of, of those secular forces is a growing contingent of radical Catholic activists. And that's what we're going to figure out today. Yeah. Uh, so in that article that you were just mentioning, uh, the authors say this. Radical activism in many European countries had a pronounced religious dimension, and nowhere was this more so than in Southern Europe, where left-wing Catholic militancy often represented a salient feature of broader social and political mobilization. Catholic activists challenged the political status quo by adopting a Marxist discourse, by agitating for social justice for those living on the margins of society, and by founding and fomenting student, labor, and neighborhood groups. Uh, so one thing that's really great about this article is they try to contextualize this story, but they do so not only through history, but a series of interviews that they do with Catholics who were living in, in several different countries, uh, specifically Italy, Spain, and France. Uh, so lots of lots of good stuff in here, lots of especially like neat pull quotes from people. But again, we're going to pull out just the, the Spain stuff mostly. So Catholic activists were engaged in this political struggle in Spain, and that's really fascinating because they offer a different kind of approach uh, against the anti-communist Francoism and a kind of anti-Catholic communism, right? There's, there's this like different kind of thing going on. Um, so the authors Clifford and Townsend say, in democratic Italy and France, these Christians sought to negotiate a third way between these two things, the anti-capitalist, sorry, <clears throat> let me back up. In democratic Italy and France, these Christians sought to negotiate a third way between the staunch anti-communism of ruling political elites and the anti-Catholicism of Communist Party supporters, offering a spiritual Marxism intended to bridge both religious and class-based societal divisions. Uh, so there's kind of like a difference here because uh, Spain, the struggle is activating under a, a, a fascist um, situation, a fascist government. Whereas in Italy and France, there's a bit more uh, democracy and also there's uh, a little more, well, a lot more positive kind of feelings toward communism in general. And those differences, I think, are especially pronounced and they create even more interesting kinds of uh, creative approaches in Spain just because of those sort of pressures, I think. Yeah, totally. It's also worth noting here that, like, um, you know, the, the spiritual Marxism is something that they actually uh, they they take they painstakingly work out for themselves. Mm -hmm. The Clifford and Townsend article is like there's a huge section in there that's just about like how they're figuring this out, how they're making these bridges, and like how some people did it in ways that weren't so good, and some people did it in ways they were good. So I guess like something that sticks out to me is that this isn't just like. Um, opportunistically using Marxism to like answer a question yeah, yeah. about social change, but it's about people like doing theology alongside that, um, that social change and trying to figure out like what it means to do both at the same time. That's pretty cool. Um, it's also worth noting too, that some of like the, the radical Catholic activists are really influenced by liberation theology too. There's some moments here where, um, the authors note that there's like a, you know, like an interchange and exchange of ideas from uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and, you know, the Christians for Socialism folks. So um, we're seeing some of that uh, Latin American influence uh, enter into the ways that these like Catholic activists are working through their theology and their political action as well. Yeah. And there's some, some especially interesting connections just by virtue of the shared language, right, between activists in Spain and activists throughout Latin America I think that's really crazy. Like lots of liberation theology got exported around the world, like relatively quickly got translated into lots of different languages. And that's really amazing. Uh, but there is something kind of fascinating about the fact that in Europe, there's a fascist state where people speak Spanish and are trying to figure out how to resist it. And they're communicating with people who are living in extremely reactionary states in Latin America that also uh, speak Spanish and are trying to figure out how to resist it. So just a sort of interesting commonality, uh, despite, you know, the different sides of or being on like the different sides of colonial history with respect to Spain or something like that. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how that gets worked out. I mean, to, to me, I, I don't know, you start reading about what's going on in Spain. It's like it's hard to miss the influence of like the, the liberation theologians. Like, you know, they have uh, base communities and um, worker priests and all kinds of other stuff going on. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The interchange is there. And it is uh, pretty historically interesting when you think about it in terms of colonialism. Yeah. 
so let's talk a little bit about Gerd Rainer Horn, and I think we'll probably use this to contextualize a lot of the stuff, and then we can come back to the um, the other article in a minute. Uh, Horn is a really fascinating historian. If you don't know who he is, he's written four or five kind of popular books, and uh, well, popular if you're like into this sort of thing, I guess, <laughs> and uh, uh, a number of articles. But he's a great historian because he writes both about the New Left on its own terms. He's written a book about the New Left, which is really hard to do well. Uh, the New Left is a hard story to tell. Uh, and also he writes about Christianity within the New Left, which is equally difficult. Uh, so he manages to pull a lot of different kinds of material in uh, in a way that's creative and compelling and easy to understand. When it comes to Spain in particular, he tries to explain how especially like student and worker movements were both full of radical Catholics, which is, again, like he's been saying, a story that doesn't often get told. So not only is there a kind of like liberation theology that gets developed in Spain, and we'll talk about more of that, but there's also a liberation movement that takes some cues from Christian institutions, even if the Catholic hierarchy is like not a huge fan of them by any means. Uh, so there's this kind of cross-pollination that you get between left and Catholic circles, even when there's a ruling right-wing dictatorship that's ostensibly Catholic as well. Um, so one way that Horn introduces us to this, I mean, there's lots of, of ways you can trace this back to even like the Spanish Civil War and before, but we can kind of pick up the story in the 50s just to come back around to 1968 shortly. Uh, so here's how Horn kind of puts this all together in a, a, a paragraph. So he says, the Spanish New Left found its organizational expression within Philippe, the Frente de Liberación Popular. Uh, and it's affiliated but autonomous sections in Catalonia and the Basque country. Those are two parts of Spain that do not particularly identify with Spain. Uh, in both Madrid and Barcelona, the two hotspots of New Left activism early on, the original nucleus was called University New Left. And both groups were almost exclusively composed of devout and practicing Catholic students, searching for an alternative to both Francoist repression and the strictures of the traditional Old Left. Uh, and he quotes something here that says, Catholicism was so very much present that very often the same meeting places used by new left circles were also utilized to hold theology seminars. And the name quickly chosen by the Spanish new left, FLP, was a conscious combination of the acronym of two organizations that served as inspiration for the Spanish new left in the 50s. The Algerian FLN, the Front de Liberation Nationale, and the French MLP, the Mouvement de Liberation Populaire. So basically, really uh, your, French, your French muscles here. I appreciate that. I, I know. I know. They're they're so rusty. You took that <laughs> class and now you can uh, really capitalize on those skills. Yeah. Yeah. I listen to a lot of uh, CBC radio French and I don't understand a look of it, but I'm slowly <laughs> picking up the pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what I love about this is that um, you get kind of everything all in one paragraph. Uh, the Spanish New Left is trying to figure out a bunch of weird stuff, right? It's, it's experimental. It's trying to sort of dissociate from Francoism, but also from certain tendencies in the old left that it doesn't dig. Uh, it's also full of Christians, which is something that doesn't often get told. And it has this international sensibility, like it's intentionally putting itself in relationship to other liberation movements, even anti-colonial liberation movements, as in the case of Algeria. So yeah. just lots of like really wild combinations. And I think it's cool that Horn puts that all together. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, so you can probably guess that... Um... A bunch of radical Catholics influenced by like militant leftist movements isn't <laughs> something that the Spanish Catholic hierarchy is really excited about. <laughs> um, so you have to remember that like in Spain, the the state gave the church a lot of authority in exchange for their loyalty. So ironically, though, that when they tried to discipline the Catholic activists, they actually drove those activists more closely into the arms of the left. Um, who were suspicious of Catholics until it turned out that they were on the bad side of the hierarchy too. So it's it's like this really um I don't know. You know like why are the why are the millennials leaving the church and it's because they're getting <laughs> pushed away. <laughs> well, yeah, in this yeah. situation it's not the millennials, but you get it. It's the same kind of it's the same kind of thing. Like why are these uh people leaving the church? It's because the church is alienating them um and into the arms of some people who are suspicious of them. Um a pretty familiar story, I guess. Although uh, in this case they're they're not leaving the church in the way millennials do where they yeah. millennials just peace out right and they're like I guess I'm just not Christian or not religious anymore uh, it's more that 
these people who are driven out of the church are like, well, I guess that we're like not friends with the hierarchy right now, but we're still Catholic and like we're going to hold on to that. I think that's actually really good. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's really good for a lot of reasons. It's cool, though. I mean, you know, there, if you want to leave Christianity, you should leave Christianity. Like, don't don't let me persuade you otherwise. Um <laughs> You know, like don't stay if it's a if, if it's a bad abusive situation. I think that's bad. Um, but on the other hand, though, if you can like stick it out, it is really worth thinking through like what makes up an institution, um, and whether or not is it you know if, is the institution its gatekeepers, its like hierarchy, its like you know people at the top, or is it the people that actually um, spend their time going to it every week um, instead of going on vacation? And I'd be, I don't know. I'm. I always think it's the people that actually go to it rather than the hierarchy. So it's cool that that's the that's the choice that many people made. But I also understand the other type of choice as well. Yeah, for sure. So keep going to church, but just be a big pain in the butt to everybody there. <laughs> that's my strategy. Um, well, Horn uh, pulls this out really well again in a, in a good paragraph that we could talk through, I guess. Uh, so Horn puts it this way, the upshot of the cycle of radicalization of Spanish, in this case student politics, coupled with repression by the Spanish curia, was a curious contradiction and a missed encounter. The uncompromising engagement by grassroots Catholic, here student activists, against the vicious dictatorship by the late 60s had resulted in a growing acceptance of Catholic militants as equal partners by activists in the Spanish secular underground left, who had earlier on, certainly up to and including the mid-60s, on occasion expressed grave reservations against the presence of Catholics among their ranks. But by the end of the decade, the church hierarchy's determined crushing of specialized Catholic action reinforced the incipient trend of Catholics to agitate within the ranks of the secular left. Growing distance from the official church furnished powerful energies for the deepening of the trends toward secularization. Some of the leading activists within Marxist organizations in the second half of the 60s and first half of the 70s emerged out of this particular conjuncture. So it's, there's a lot going on. Uh, yeah, go ahead. It's just so funny that like um, it's so funny that the the church's like the church's persecution of like the the Catholic action is what gives them <laughs> what gives them like the street cred they need to fall in with the actual leftists. <laughs> yeah, totally. I love that, and it's like a common story, right? Like we've noticed that in the Philippines, for example, right, mm -hmm. where uh, like a dictator starts calling everybody left leftists, including Catholics who probably aren't, and then eventually the Catholics are like, "Well, I guess we're leftists." <laughs> yeah, totally. It's good. <laughs> well, it's not good, but like it's it's very interesting in the way that happens rhetorically, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like the right sort of builds its own opposition in that way. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, they do build their own opposition in that way. Um, and then, like, they they build it rhetorically first, and then they build it actually. And that's <laughs> pretty silly. Stop doing that. <laughs> or maybe or, keep doing keep, it. I don't know. Keep doing it. Yeah, please. Please <laughs> keep calling everyone a leftist until they all just agree. All right. <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> the Republicans in the United States have got a pretty good uh, track record so far. That's true, yeah. Uh, although, ironically, uh, in the U.S., people who get accused of, Marxist, of Marxism just say that they're not one, which is too bad. We need to get to a point where they can own it. Yeah. I mean, professional politicians, they probably won't. Yeah. Uh, they, they won't probably switch sides, I suppose, but maybe <laughs> maybe regular people. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's like that video that was going around on Facebook the other day from, I can't remember, it was a journalist from some uh, good outlet. Maybe it was like Young Turks or something. But she was talking to this like woman who was a Trump supporter and she was just like, Joe Biden is a communist. And <laughs> and she was like, but he's not. And it's so funny though. Like what if that worked? Like what if that really worked? If uh, Trump calling Joe Biden a communist would just really make him switch sides. Yeah. Yeah. Just doing it to the point where he's like, fine, I guess I am a communist. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd still take Joe. No, definitely not. Well, he'll he'll never do that. It's the trouble. Yeah, someone should do it with Bernie. That's true. That's my sectarian comment for the for this episode. Sorry, that was a big segue, a big segue no. away from where we were going. Uh, all right, so also kind of getting into this some more. So that we've been talking sort of about the student piece of this whole conversation, which is a huge part of 1968. One story that people tell about the new left, which has you know elements of truth and some elements that are maybe overstated, but whatever. Uh, one story that gets told is that the new left in the, the 60s and 70s is a drastic change in how the left organizes, not just how it understands itself, but even how it puts, you know, people in the streets. 
And the primary change that is often cited here is a change of constituency. So whereas the old left is all about the workers and putting unions together and getting labor out and striking and that sort of a thing, the new left is more characterized by student protests. So you're trying to activate intellectuals. Uh, students are going out as very young people and getting jobs, but having read, you know, vast amounts of, of theory and not just Marxist theory, lots of other stuff too, like Freud and, you know, whatever is kind of like in vogue at the time, they're sort of experimenting with different ways of thinking. So that's all a very cool and important piece of the story. And it's cool that Horn says that, hey, a lot of those people were also Catholic in Spain. Uh, but it's not like the old left or maybe more appropriately, the constituency of workers goes away. Uh, and that's true all over, uh, but especially in Spain. So one of the major players here is Catholic unions, unions that are organized by Catholics and even have Catholic names and are in some cases funded by the church. Uh, they become really important in organizing against Franco, so much so that uh, when Pope Pius Twelfth, who's a famous anti-communist pope, uh, established the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker in 1955, he did that in order to compete with May Day, which was like a you know secular radical labor holiday. Uh, but when he did that, the radical Catholics in Spain sort of saw that as an opportunity to merge these two traditions together to create kind of like what you could call a Catholic May Day on St. Joseph the Worker Day. Uh, so just to pull this out, uh, I'll read a bit from Horn and we can talk more about how all this uh, fits. So Horn says this, um, a mainstay of Marxist and anarchist inspired celebrations of labor and labor movements ever since the Haymarket massacres of 86, 1886. Uh, by 1955, Pope Pius had decided to counteract this popular secular left-wing tradition by proclaiming the 1st of May, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Uh, in most countries around the world, this ideological counteroffensive did not exactly turn out to become a full-blown success, but in Spain, this new holiday took on a life of its own. Celebrations organized to venerate St. Joseph the Worker quickly mutated into anti-regime expressions of increasingly radical intent. Thus, for instance, as early as 1961, in the Asturian industrial port city of Gijon, the festivities to honor St. Joseph, organized by two Catholic uh, labor unions, went somewhat astray. The auxiliary bishop, in the course of the morning, celebrated the Eucharist in the parish of San Jose, St. Joseph, then presided over a public gathering which attracted 2,000 participants. On this occasion, several Christian activists took to the floor and developed stridently critical assessments of the economic and socio-political socio situation in Gijon, Asturias, and Spain as a whole. Enraged, <laughs> I love this, the auxiliary bishop then delivered a closing address in which he sharply criticized the earlier speeches and expressed his fundamental disagreement with what had been said by the Catholic Action representatives. In the afternoon of May Day, the, uh, 1961, the diocesan chaplains of these two Catholic uh, unions were promptly removed from their positions, and other dissident parish priests were subsequently forced to relinquish their posts as well. But a pattern had been established. Uh, so I love this passage and the story, uh, just a really amazing way in which the Catholic left at the time is kind of appropriating all this stuff uh, and, you know, weaponizing Catholicism against reactionary Catholicism in an interesting way. Yeah, uh, it's pretty good. Okay, so that was the established, or that was like the pattern that gets established. So here's like another story that Horn references from May Day 1968. One particular group was isolated from the rest of the victims and suffered further brutal aggression, unimaginable extremes, before being summarily arrested. Between 20 and 25 demonstrators were jailed, some of them quickly released, leaving nine protesters in prison, three of them women. All but one of these victims were members of um, some Catholic unions whose names don't translate well into English, and I'm not going to try. Um, sorry. At 5.30 p.m., uh, the Catholic Union attempted to hold the traditional mass associated with the feast day, as they had done in all previous years, a mass exclusively dedicated to the honor of our patron saint, St. Joseph the Worker. Only this time, things turned ugly in the church. The regular parish priest of the chosen church in San Jose, or St. Joseph, in the neighborhood of Tetuan, had been placed under house arrest by the police, forcing the organizers to quickly find a replacement. But mass was never held on May 1st, 1968. About 100 people entered the chosen church, but mere minutes before mass was scheduled to begin, a large number of police arrived, blocking off in spectacular coordinated maneuver the adjacent streets and the entry to the church, demanding identification cards from all present and barring access to the interior of the church to others. Several police officers entered the church with the intention of carrying out arrests and ignoring protests of the priests. 
Okay. So not only does the Catholic hierarchy just not like the Catholic action folks, but they're ready to stop uh, stop them from taking Eucharist, stopping a bunch of people from taking Eucharist. Um, for Protestants, this might not seem like a big deal, right? You just don't get that little cup and that little that little gross wafer. But for Catholics, it's a big deal because it's you know actually the body and blood of Jesus. So there you go. That's a pretty um, that it, the pattern has been established, but then the pattern gets extremely bad and way worse. Um, you know, not only are they just like disagreeing, but they're like actually using the cops against the activists. Yeah, I think it's fascinating as a story as well, because in Francoist Spain, what you basically have here is a Catholic dictatorship refusing to let other Catholics go to mass, right? Uh, like it gives the lie to the universality of the Catholic Church under dictatorship because it's not universal. Uh, and the the just the simple act of having a mass in a church dedicated to St. Joseph, the worker on May Day, is radical enough. Uh, so much so that they have to place the parish priest under house arrest. I think that is crazy. Like, they're preemptively preventing uh, a priest from, you know, having church, like saying mass, uh, because they know that there's something more kind of brewing underneath. But like it's a but what's so wild though is that it is a country that has given a ton of authority to the church, you know? It's like yeah. it is a Catholic country uh in in policy and they're yeah. not letting this dude go give uh go give Eucharist to people. I I I mean, you know, it's you could just say that it's like hypocritical, but I think it's more than that. It is like, you know, it's a Catholic country, but it's a specific uh, a specific type of Catholicism that they want to allow for and they want to bar another type. So yeah. Pretty wild. It is. Uh, well, that's maybe a good transition to come back to this Clifford and Townsend article because they spend a lot of time talking about the construction of this alternative kind of Catholicism or a resistant form of Catholicism. Um, so maybe just a, a couple of quick quotes, um, especially as we're kind of like nearing the end of the episode here. <laughs> yeah. We'll bring it home by, by talking about this. So uh, here's something they sort of open up. They say, many lay people felt ostracized by traditional church groups or had become frustrated with official church hierarchies. For them, the attraction of radical communities grew out of the chance to engage in a dialogue with priests, with other lay participants, and with church teachings and the very contents of the Bible itself, right? So they're trying to get through the sort of mediation of Catholicism via dictatorship to find a different kind of Catholicism. And they can do that through Vatican II, these authors argue, uh, which is important because even Gerd Rainer Horn's book, right, is titled The Spirit of Vatican II. Uh, so I'll say something about that. They say, the council opened up space within the official church to discuss ideas already circulating for some time in progressive Catholic environments, and the documents issued by the council had potentially revolutionary implications. Several ideas emerged that were particularly influential. The idea that not only the priests, but the entire community of the faithful is the subject of the liturgical celebration, ending the clergy's monopoly on the liturgy. The notion that the church itself is made up of the people of God rather than the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The affirmation of the apostolate of the laity, the opening to non-Catholic and even non-religious communities, and the recognition that the idea of mission can be applied to formerly Christian areas which have become de-Christianized, opening the door to a second wave of the worker-priest movement. So, like, I don't know, sometimes people think that church councils are just boring and dry, and like in some ways they are. Uh, but I think it's really important to recognize, too, that things like Vatican II actually helped usher in, like... Uh, <laughs> actually revolutionary moments in Catholicism around the world, right? It opened up a space for resistance under dictatorship or within dictatorship. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to realize there are like political stakes in these kinds of churchly uh, proceedings as well. Yeah, I think that sounds that sounds right. Um, yeah, it's cool that uh, Vatican II made this kind of change. Um, there, there's just like so much stuff going on here that I really find, you know, very interesting because it's it's one of these moments in like that weird like leftist Christian history where um, the you know people are kind of fed up with what the church is institutionally. It's not kind of doing what they want want to do and it's uh, actively repressing them in a pretty horrible way. Um, so they like you know they they establish base communities. the priests the priests join like you know, the, the workers and the students, they, they as worker priests, we didn't really talk about that very much, but worker priests was like this kind of tradition in Europe and I, probably other places as well, but 
I, I only know about them right now because of this article. Um, but you know, the priests they they live they live next to people. They don't live in like a parish. They don't like dress like priests. They you know they have like jobs doing manual labor. So it's like these like interesting encounters emerge when like the Catholic when when the Catholic hierarchy when the institution itself is like alienating everybody that people still feel invested enough in religion and they find it important enough to like the way they live their lives and the way they understand their you know particular place in politics to do something different that is still like in the spirit of that thing like um you know it's it's very much like a people's church but they don't use that word but it's the same the same general idea I guess is like the um the church's uh is not just um, only the hierarchy, but it's also the people that go to it and um, they're willing to throw down and invest in that community. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and it's crazy too, that the worker priests movement happened before Vatican II, but Vatican II ends up being a sort of almost like ecclesial license uh, for doing it. Because they were kind of like banned at one point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were. Uh, well, eventually maybe we'll come back around to talk more about some theologians that come out of this movement. There are lots of cool ones, especially this guy, Jose Maria Gonzalez Ruiz, um, who was a really amazing figure and wrote some neat stuff about Marxism and Christianity. Um, and maybe we'll come back to him at some point uh, down the line. Um, but maybe we should kind of close telling the end of this story to a yeah. certain degree. Um all right, so like the way that Horn tells the story of the Catholic left is interesting because he draws out this struggle that's happening within the Catholic Church, right? It's it's not just that there's one Catholic Church that's a dictatorship or even one Catholic Church that's revolutionary. It's there's I don't know, many Catholic churches all kind of messing each other up within the same uh the same country and the same tradition. Um, but it also helps explain why Spain was ready to secularize when Francoism collapsed. And that is an interesting conclusion, too. So this happens in the 70s. It's, you know, not that long after 1968, which is kind of a pivotal moment in Spain, too. Um, obviously, people were pissed about Catholicism's ties to Franco. So, like, that's a pretty good reason to not be Catholic after Francoism goes away. Uh, but the church also kind of like dismantled its own hope of survival in a post-Francoist Spain by severely disciplining and like defunding these Catholic organizations that worked so hard to win the trust of the people by opposing, you know, the fascist form of, of Catholicism. Um, so I'll just read one short passage by Horn here. He says, the Spanish Curia in many ways achieved its goals by disciplining these organizations. The dynamism of specialized Catholic action was halted in full flight. Under attack from both secular and ecclesial authorities, Catholic action members now were forced to focus on defending their home turf within the structures of the church. The social impact of progressive Catholicism was thus dramatically, and one should add artificially, cut short and reduced precisely at a moment when opposition movements within and outside the Catholic church had become seemingly unstoppable. Membership in specialized Catholic action drastically declined. In one sense, Spanish progressive Catholics never recovered from this dramatic loss of power, and influence within the anti-Francoist parallelogram of forces. When the Curia-driven campaign came to an end, the former flagship organizations of Catholic action were a pale shadow of their former selves. Uh, and he goes on to say that uh, once the sort of writing was on the wall and Francoism was disappearing, the Spanish Curia was, you know, conveniently open to changing and becoming more <laughs> progressive. Uh, but they had already shot themselves in the foot and they were too late because they had dismantled the the real work that had been done by people to, to do this. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating piece of this whole story, too, right? That, like... Uh, not only were Catholics prepared to uh, to destroy Francoism and usher in a new kind of Catholicism and a new kind of political order, but the bishops were desperate to stop them from doing that. And in so doing, they also cannibalized their own influence in the church. So mm. it's a really kind of interesting moment of like self-defeat. Yeah, totally. It is very interesting and pretty sad if you think about it. Um, yeah. So I'm not going to think about it. Um <laughs> That's the life of the scholar, not thinking about the things that make it too sad. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, okay, so we have a big a big history, and we'll probably get into it some more um, in another episode or something. But what do you think, like, what is it that we can learn from this history? Like, um, the history is good. It's a great story. I love it. But what else would we do with this, maybe? What does it mean for us as Christian leftist people now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the things that really stick with me are certain themes that we've talked about before, uh, but get driven home in the Spanish situation in a unique way. 
probably most specifically, I think the idea that Christianity is full of its own antagonisms and is always fighting with itself is something that Mm -hmm. I really appreciate being reminded of all the time, right? Like, it's good to know that Catholicism is not reducible to its most reactionary and most brutal uh, expressions. Um, And it's also important to remember that Christianity doesn't just kind of automatically put its progressive face forward and then win the battle, right? Like, it it doesn't just kind of, like, automatically discover its true roots of leftism or something and then, you know, wins the political uh, battle, which I think some people insinuate on, uh, especially like Christian liberals. Um, So just kind of sitting with that antagonism with the the full force of all the contradictions and complications, I think that's what I take away the most from these kinds of case studies. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Yeah, totally. Especially with this one. I mean, having read the uh, Marika Rose's book a few weeks ago, it's just like, um, it's there, there's a lot of cool energy in it, right? For for a few minutes, and um, you get you get the feeling that there are these different factions, and that there's um, different ways of doing Christianity, and that that like that's awesome. But then on the other hand, like you see the failure of this whole situation, mm-hmm. and it's it sucks. And yeah, sitting with the antagonism is maybe just a better way to say it. But there is, I mean, the whole the whole situation falls apart. They do shoot themselves in the foot by kind of like, you know, cannibalizing those and disciplining so harshly those other organizations, Catholic Action. Um, so it's kind of a bummer. I guess like what it, it is a bummer, but on the other hand, it's like um, it shows potential, I suppose. Like maybe that's part of the, the Marika Rose stuff that's like missing for me is that like you can Christianity can look all these different ways and it can be super reactionary and it can be super revolutionary and it can be, uh, you know, mayor Pete too, or whatever. Um, (laughs) but, um, but I guess in all of that though, there is like certain potentials that it has from the beginning. And I guess like this, looking at these different types of political projects that Christians get involved in show you like the types of potentials for better and for worse that Christianity has, and uh, this is at least one of them that is, in my book, better. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, and we know that you did, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. This, uh, this time of the month, we got a cool book club uh, reading group going on. If you want to get involved, you can give us $2, and you can get in on that reading group. We're reading the first chapter this week, so uh, if you're only hearing this now and you want to be in the reading group, you probably missed the first chapter, but you can still jump in, in the second. No big deal. Um, cool. Yeah, you can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash The Magnificast. We have a cool Facebook group that we just learned about again last week because we forgot about it called The Magnificast Basement. So get in all of those places. Talk to us. Uh, tell us what you think. Hey, you know what would be really cool? If you left us a review on iTunes, um, just go find our profile. Leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you like about the podcast. And if you, if you don't like anything, just keep it to yourself. Cool. Uh, the music is uh, by Amaria Armstrong. The outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Uh, we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.